You can't trust this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change, and you know it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. One day, when the glory comes, it will be out, it will be out. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Because the Black Lives Matter movement emerged under a black president, black attorney general, and black homeland security, and they couldn't deliver, you see. So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working class black people, poor and working class brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless, then you get rebellion. And we've reached the point now, it's a choice between nonviolent revolution, and by revolution what I mean is the democratic sharing of power, resources, wealth, and respect. If we don't get that kind of sharing, you're going to get more violent explosions. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're going to sing to swim, you're going to learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're going to learn the truth. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. That is a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And good evening. Thank you so much for joining us in a new kind of Wednesday night open mic. It's post hoc. Post hoc means occurring or done after the event with a logical relationship with the event that it follows. And it is our response to listeners who often complain that we do not provide enough time on our regular Saturday episodes to allow them to express what's on their mind. 
let me try to explain a little bit about how that happens. We have so many dynamic, informative, insightful guests that it is very difficult uh, to interrupt the stream of discussion to go to our callers. And sometimes um, that causes listeners to um, not enjoy it in the way that they want to enjoy talk radio. So we are providing, we're te- we keep testing out extra time for callers to call in. And I'm saying that post hoc is our episode about last Saturday night and more. So one of the first things we want to do is to let you know that our number is 347-838-9852. Write it down. And for those who are listening on some smart device and you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, the location is blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And our call-in number is 347-838-9852. Post-talk is an opportunity for me to stop talking about whatever I was talking about and take your calls at 347-838-9852. And there are seats available in our chat room. Tonight at Post-talk in this premiere edition of About Saturday Night, uh, we're going to be talking about some other things as well, and we hope that uh, introducing some other topics, one of the things that um, I want to cover is a law which is called Marcy's Law, and it ensures crime victims the right to privacy. But it is also a way of how police officers who use force and even kill can hide their names from the public. Another thing I want to bring into this discussion tonight at Post Hoc, at Our Common Ground, is the Trump campaign officials who started pressuring Georgia's Secretary of State Long before the elections, you have probably heard over the last couple of days that Senator Lindsey Graham had the audacious gall to call the Georgia Secretary of State to question him about the voting process in Georgia. Now, last we all checked, Lindsey Graham was a senator from South Carolina. So what that has caused is this, uh, his name is Brad Raffensperger. Well, Brad Raffensperger is feeling a little bit pressured by the senator from South Carolina, but he is also helping us see that Though he is a Republican Secretary of State, the Republican Party officials began calling 
long before the elections, and he rejected repeated demands to endorse the Trump of the White House. And as the official overseeing the voting, he believed he should be re, uh, remain neutral, but the Republican Party did not. A third kind of thing I want to talk about tonight at Post Talk is that a consortium of news organizations, including ProPublica, which is my favorite news source, has won a legal fight against the Small Business Administration of the Trump administration. It will now, meaning the Small Business Administration, have to publicly release the names of borrowers who got government pandemic loans. If you will recall, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin tried to suppress that information. That's what's on my mind tonight, in addition to some of the things that we talked about in last Saturday's program around what black people are going to do with this new earned capital, political capital with the Democratic Party. And I am sure that many of you want to talk about it, if you will recall. We were in conversation with Dr. Miriam Duchess Harris from McAllister College in Minnesota on last Saturday night, and she had a lot to say about the positioning that black activists and black advocacy groups advocacy groups will have and should have with the Democratic Party and this new Democratic um, administration. And my question is constant, and that is, how do we do that? How do we collect on the debt that is owed? The other is, uh, two weeks ago, at Our Common Ground Saturday edition, we had as a panel doing as uh, the part two of um, our 2002 election review on the black side, and our panel consisted of Dr. Kimberly Ellis of Black Politics hashtag Black Politics Matter, um, Pascal Robert, the thought merchant of the Black Agenda, a contributor to the Black Agenda Report, and Dr. James Taylor, the chair of the politics department at the University of San Francisco. And in that conversation, there was a dispute that was being massaged and that is that we have we we that there is an absolute positioning of black people in the, inside the democratic establishment democratic party establishment and um i'm i probably got more than 100 
uh, emails in, in response to that program, and most of them were complaining about not being able to call in and talk to those panelists. And I have tried to the best of my ability to respond to them and say you can come into post talk on Wednesday night and express your response to what was being discussed on that program. So that that's the agenda for here for tonight. And again, our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. Uh let me just say that on our Saturday night episodes of Our Common Ground, we constantly attempt to provide critical analysis, examination, ideas, and solutions of from the most vigorous thought leaders in America who are black. And I call them people who are the investors, scholars, authors, journalists, and activists with long records of working for and searching for a way forward to a more informed black community. And I think that most of you will agree that my guests fit that. And not only are they investors in our future as a community, they are also workers and warriors uh, in the work that has to be done. Uh, They provide information, credible research, insight, and vision about our struggle living as an oppressed people inside a democracy which is articulated but often denied to us. And we can see that in the various ways in which voter suppression against black communities, black um, uh, counties across the country being executed in protest and contest by the Republican Party. Many times we we are unable to take calls, especially as much as we want. Uh, if I wanted to even add another hour to this program, it would cost me an additional $1,000 uh, for the platform from which we broadcast. So post-talk, um, which is open mic night here at Our Common Ground, is an opportunity to give our listeners more time to chime in on what our guests have had to say. It is an opportunity for Our Common Ground listeners' point of view, which I believe is important. You know, we have been broadcasting since 1985, and we have been working on a commitment to our listeners to the proposition that black people in this country require information which is filtered through a lens that respects the importance of our history, centuries of government negligence and betrayal, 
and the human toll of many black generations. In we try to in our broadcasts uh, to host guests and engage with our listeners as a place of sanctuary to respect and lift up our truth. Uh, and our truth includes heartbreaking politics, socioeconomic realities, structural structural racism in every facet of black lives, no matter where we are on the economic spectrum. And I like to talk about black truth because our truth is formed through our experience as a people uh, as we face mass incarceration of our brothers and sisters, intentional miseducation of our children, state-sanctioned and legal murdering under law, medical, environmental, and employment injustice, and simply trying to find a place to both excel and survive under the duality of our citizenship. Uh, So uh, what we want to do is meet the requirement as a specialized filter uh, for living, studying, and listening. And I have always been, I have always proposed that here at Our Common Ground, we see America, and that's America with three Ks. And we have been its dilemma, its savior, and its visionary. And that's what I call black truth. And I'm I'm real pleased to have um, all of you join us tonight as we kick off another effort at providing uh, a sanctuary, a place, a space where we are not held by any particular ideology, but we are held by our need to respond to our ancestors and as our our common ground administrator always says and our obligation to 500 years to the future. So thank you very much for 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 joining us and we hope that we can be successful in this. This is a very competitive business. I I don't see it as a business, I see it as a service to my community, which is why we're not asking you to pay for anything. We're not asking you to send us a, a fruit basket. We're not asking for any of that stuff. I mean, Alpha could could send me some 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 ribs, and Shannon could send me some fish, but I've been waiting for many years for all of that. Um, the other is it gives us an opportunity to offer black thought which is not judged. As you have, if you are a part of the Our Common Ground family, if you have been with this broadcast, we have now been on the Internet for 11 years. If you have been with this broadcast, you understand that it is my position that you have to meet black people where they are. 
when I go in and I do programs at the Boys and Girls Club or the Boys and um, yeah, the Boys and Girls Club in Boston. There, there's a system called Boys and Girls Club, but there's a, the other thing, um, uh, the you know programs, uh, community programs for young people, community programs for seniors, community programs, whatever it is. When I go in, and I do a lot of group uh, work, uh, or when I am dealing with uh, advocacy groups like tenant groups, uh, public housing, or um, people who are members of various work unions, organized unions, uh, one of the things that I know is that within every one of their those groups, there are various levels of consciousness, there are very, uh, various levels of comfortability. Um, and I'm not talking about the black people who would defend Donald Trump or the black people who would defend the Republican Party or the black people who would defend uh, right conservatism or right alt-right evangelical. I'm talking about the black people who seem whose moral uh, moral guidance does not accommodate certain kinds of progressive movement. We don't we don't judge those people, you know. When I'm sitting here. This is very different from the kind of radio I did as terrestrial radio. I could deal with community issues because it was community radio. It wasn't national, international radio. I I just picked up like more than 3,000 followers or likers or whatever it is on Facebook. And 67% of those people were outside of the United States. I don't know how that happened. I have no idea. But it happened. I got, all of a sudden, I don't know if it was uh, Miriam uh, Harris or Carl Diggs or Kim uh, Ellis, but all of a sudden, I've got over 6,000 in the last week, week and a half, over 6,000 new people who are following my Facebook page, which, by the way, is OCG Talk Radio on Facebook if you'd like to join us. I really would prefer to get off of Facebook, but it's too late because that ship has, what? That ship has sailed. So one of the things I want people to know is that I do have my own personal Facebook, you can have your own forums, you can post your pictures, you can post your videos, you can post anything you want, you can have your own little uh, Facebook page or kind of like Facebook page, just like Facebook page, but you name it what you want to name it. Um, And if you would like an invitation to that, you can go to ourcommonground-talk.ning.com. We've had it for for uh, well over uh, 11, ever since we came to to the Internet. And um, 
if you if you go to my Facebook page, you can find the link to it, and you have to ask for membership. You have to request a membership, and I'm I, and I examine I re, I review every membership request because a whole bunch of people uh, trolls use it to sell stuff, and I'm always kicking them out. So it's our common ground hyphen talk. .ning.com. And if you want to go to it and request a, a membership, I'm sure you can Google Our Common Ground Ning. Uh, we've got a lot of platforms. Uh, it's a full-time job for me and um, uh, just to keep up, keep all the platforms uh, uh, up to date our website is ourcommonground.com. We also have truthworksnetworks.com. We have the Alpha Show.com. We have powerview.com. I've got six Facebook pages that I manage. It's Black Women in the Prism, Working While Black, a Reparations Reader, um, TruthWorks, the Alpha Show Facebook pages, and Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. I mean, we do a lot of stuff. It sounds like a um, um, multi-million dollar uh, media empire, <laughs> but it ain't. <laughs> it's just simply trying to preserve, to respect, and to claim black truth. And by the way, my name is Janice Graham, and I'm in in it uh, until we continue. But before we take your calls at 347-838-9852, I want to do a couple of things and see. As soon as I start doing these things, then the calls will come. Um, put your call in now. I can see you on the queue. When you call 347-838-9852 and you want to talk, you once you call that number, then you should prompt yourself to hit one if you want to talk. If you just want to listen, uh, you do nothing. But I want to I want to go into the COVID numbers um, because it's important for us to look at COVID nineteen uh, isn't affecting all communities equally. Now, see, this is something that I would like to talk about more on the Saturday show, but I don't get a chance to do it. I do open up the episode with the numbers. But one of the things that we have got to do is to look at the disparities, the the disparities and how anti-racist research should be informing us. And one of the things that happened uh, very early on in the pandemic is that the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research has has started collecting the data, uh, um, started providing a racial data tracker. But for the public, you deserve uh, the most complete data available about COVID-19 in the U.S. Um, 
and there is no official United States of America source which is providing all of the data, you know. So here, here are the totals for, for today. In the United States, we've had 171,908,902. I'm going to do that again. 171,908,902 total test results. That's almost 172 million tests in the United States. There have been uh, near 12 million cases in the United States. And there have been 241,704 deaths. But if you track racial and ethnic data from every state that reports it, and all states don't push it or don't report it, and um, analyze it to uncover the true impact of the outbreak on vulnerable um, communities like the black community, you'll find the following. Black people are dying at 2.1 times the rate of white people. Now, that might might not be surprising to some, but it should be startling to everybody. And deaths per 100,000 people, Black people are dying at a rate of 110. And the next largest race or ethnicity are American Indian or Alaska natives. I, I don't even like that. I, you know, I like to call Native Americans the original peoples, but, you know, the rest of the world hasn't gotten with me yet. It's 77. So um, if you look at some of this data, because the state-level statistics tell part of the story, but many U.S. states, as I said, are also deeply segregated, meaning different counties in the same state can have vastly different breakdowns and vastly different ways in which they are reporting the data, if they are reporting it at all. So if we look at um, the highest level of deaths per capita, There are 20 counties that I have looked at. Black people represent the largest racial group um, in those counties. And they are Hancock, Georgia, Emporia City, Virginia, 
and Randolph, Georgia. And what it shows is that in 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 Hancock, Georgia, there were five hundred and twenty seven deaths that were black. Um I'm sorry, 527 deaths. And blacks represented 69.6% of those deaths. If we go down to Randolph, Georgia, which is a it's a county in Georgia, there were 423 deaths. And African Americans deaths were at 62.1% of those 423. If we go to Terrell, Georgia, there were 300, Terrell County, there were 373 deaths, and blacks represented 58.6% of those. And you can go all over this country. Uh, Another example, Sharkey County, Mississippi, 355 deaths, and blacks represented 73.9%. And and I started looking at, I, I really started looking at counties where of the of the top fifty uh counties where the black death was over fifty more than sixty percent so so there you have it that's that's where we are and one of the things that we have to be real careful about as we as we look at these numbers is that the numbers really represent an already existing medical disparity uh, in this country for African Americans. The inability to access proper health care. The inability to secure environmental justice, removal of mold, children, um, uh, environmental issues having to do with commercial operations close to where, especially in segregated uh, counties and and communities, and there are still some of those, um, the ability to, to have public policy address environmental justice for those people. Um, I was reading over the weekend uh, the idea that in so many, not the idea, the fact, that so many people, black people, who continue to live in rural sections of the Mississippi Delta and in states like Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, um, 
who simply don't have appropriate septic tank maintenance and operation. And then in the same story, they were talking about people who who had no indoor plumbing. And that shouldn't be surprising to us, but it should be startling. And and there there is a difference. So I think that I, I what I was startled about, and our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. If you want to call in and talk about any of these issues, what was start, what has been startling to me is that no one is tracking anything that had to do in the twenty twenty election around referendum issues directly related to black people. And I had an opportunity to go on a call with Mike Epsi yesterday who lost his campaign race for um, Senate in um, Mississippi. And I initiated a conversation about the need to have electoral candidates be connected to legislative referendum items when they run for office. You're running on something, and if that something doesn't exist, why isn't it a referendum item? we got to get on on the good stick about this. I'm going to let you get your drinks together, let you get your thoughts together, and our number is 347-838-9852, and we are at Post Hoc also going to be showcasing uh, people who are doing the work of activism in our community, thinking about And one of the stellar activists ever in this country, white, black, green, or otherwise, or, you know, rainbow or whatever, um, was Ida B. B. Wells. And it's not enough for us to run around and saying, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter, Ida B., and not really know her life. So I'm going to share with you for a few minutes and then come back and if there are callers and take uh, take your calls on all of these issues. You're listening to Post Talk, which is Wednesday Open Night Mike at Our Common Ground. I'd be Wells was born in 1862 in the middle of the Civil War in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which was actually contested territory and kept being claimed by the Confederates and then by the Union. She lived through really tumultuous times. She was also orphaned at an early age. Her parents were killed in the yellow fever epidemic of the 1870s that swept through the Mississippi Valley. And she was left at 16 years old to take care of her five surviving brothers and sisters. After her parents passed, their friends were going to take the children and split them up, and I did not want this to happen. She became a teacher, essentially, to support her brothers and sisters and keep the family together. She's only 16, but she had 
basic education, which was enough in those days to teach at a rural country school where she'd educate black children. She had a lot of responsibility in early age, and she managed to somehow rise to it. Wells seems to have been a sort of natural feminist from the beginning. She never really seemed to see any reason why she couldn't do everything a man could do. And the fact that she had to uh, support her brothers and sisters from an early age may have sort of shaped her idea of herself as someone who was, you know, sort of head of a family. By the early 1880s, Ida had moved to Memphis, and she was still teaching in rural schools, so she was traveling back and forth to work on what was then a newfangled thing, which was a train. One day, she took her seat in what was then known as the ladies' car. It was the second car on the train. They typically only had two, and they were reserved for women. They were non-smoking, they were sometimes more comfortable, and Wells had ridden in them previously, but this particular day, she was told that she could not sit in it. She insisted that she could. She had bought a ticket for that car, and she ended up having an enormous fight with a conductor. He tried to pull her out physically. She bit him. They cast her out. She uh, got a ride home in a wagon and immediately sued the railroad. Her suit wound through the courts for several years. In the lower court she won, the judge said that she was a respectable-looking person. She was, in fact, a lady, so there's no reason why she shouldn't ride in the lady's car. But when it got to the state Supreme Court, she lost. Tennessee was in the process of implementing segregation during this time, which really took shape after the Civil War, so she couldn't win. She was devastated by not winning, but um, it turned her into an activist. That was sort of the beginning of her activism. And it was also the beginning of her being a journalist because she wrote up her experience in a, a church newspaper called The Living Way. Ida B. Wells was not alone. There were a few black women journalists during her time. But she was distinctive in the fact that she wrote about a variety of subjects. She didn't just write for the women's page. She was a political independent. She weighed in on things like disenfranchisement and segregation and so forth. She rapidly became really the most prominent black female journalist. She actually wrote during her early years under the pen name Iola, which she chose as a sort of countrified name to evoke her rural upbringings and speak to the fact that she wanted to speak to the common people. She wanted to speak to everyone. She was known for being very outspoken and lively. She got this nickname Iola, Princess of the Press. Wells became a leader in anti-lynching and essentially almost invented it, I would say, because of a sort of terrible personal experience she had. It was a terrible lynching in Memphis in which three black men were killed, and one of them was a man named Thomas Moss, a local businessman as well as a local mailman who was a friend of Wells along with his wife. Wells is out of town when this happens, and she comes back to find black people fleeing Memphis, her friend Thomas dead along with two other men. She had been thinking that, you know, she would live in the South and she would work to make it a better place. But when she looked at someone like Thomas Moss, who had been a uh, devout churchgoer, taught Sunday school, invested in his own business, done everything that the sort of world said that blacks needed to do to get ahead and then had ended up being lynched, 
she began to question whether you could really do anything in the South. She published an editorial that went essentially too far in saying all this, um, and a white mob stormed the office of the free speech and destroyed the printing press. Wells was fortunate she wasn't there, but the mob left a note basically telling whoever was printing the newspaper that they should leave town and putting a death threat. She ended up in New York where she was hired by T. Thomas Fortune, the publisher of the New York Aged, and led what was basically sort of the first anti-lynching campaign where she identified lynching as a crime and was trying to push the government and social reformers to take action about it. Anti-lynching would become a major commitment for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and it would also be a major commitment of black women's clubs and other civil rights organizations. to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And we thank you for being here at Our Common Ground. On post hoc, um, I think that was a, um, a really good overview of the life of um, Ida B. Wells, and I think that, I hope that you enjoyed some of it. Our number is 347-838-9852. It's the first episode of Post Hoc Open Mic Wednesday night. All you folks who complaining about you can't get on the air because I don't take your calls. Here we are on Wednesday night trying to take your calls. And we have no calls. None. Nobody's on the board. Maybe it's because it's the first night and on a premiere of a broadcast, sometimes people haven't made it a, um, a habit. Uh, of of coming uh, to us. So, um, you know, I always bring some tools with me um, and hope that people will get into the habit that we don't have to do two hours of waiting for calls. Um, the other is your anxiety, we, we didn't mention this, the anxiety that everybody has had. I talk to a lot of people who don't necessarily pay attention to to the details of what's happening politically. But people have been under an awful amount of stress about this government, about this president. This president is a shameless, corrupt criminal. And then 
on top of it, and I know there's some people out there, I know one person out there must be awfully angry about the idea that Joe Biden is talking about, well, I'm not so sure I'm going to pursue, we've got some other things to do other than chasing behind and spending uh, an entire year and a half trying to bring Donald Trump to the law and hoping, hoping, hoping that New York will do that for them. The other thing is, I I think that there are people out there who never paid attention, but they were so distressed about not – I'm talking about people who really didn't understand what he was doing, really didn't understand the emoluments issue, didn't understand any of the stuff, but distressed by his behavior. And a lot of those people were older black people uh, who were just stunned by the unethical, immoral, and deviant behavior, deviant official behavior of this president. The, The whole idea that a president would seize the office of President of the United States to serve himself, to say stupid stuff, to say racially charged stuff, to say racist stuff, to support white supremacists, to ignore a pandemic and lie about a pandemic. I mean, I had people who were saying to me, thank you, Janice, for for the program. I don't know much about... Uh, all the stuff that you talk about, but I do know that Donald Trump is a huge liar. And why do they let him do that? But then you turn this week and you look at the behavior of a sitting senator, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Judiciary Committee, who blatantly attempts to corrupt an election official. I don't know about you, but I feel very sympathetic with people who don't pay attention. You know, and they're they're mostly older people. You know, I'm I'm not sure if I'm old people or not, but maybe, you know, maybe I am. I know my grandchildren think I'm old people. (laughs) So who the hell knows? But at least, you know, I'm reading uh, five or six sources of credible news every day. Um, I sit here and um, have my coffee, and I I don't have the newspapers, with the exception of the New York Times, delivered anymore. Not even the Boston Globe, but I do read the Boston Globe every day um, so that I know 
what's going on in the places that I have touched and the stuff that I have done, you know, like today, um, Kim Budd was confirmed, unanimously confirmed as a Supreme Court Justice of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I got the call the evening of the day that she was born. Hey, um, um, just want you to know, I got a girl, Bud Wayne, and his daughter today was confirmed as a Supreme Court, that child was confirmed as a Supreme Court Justice of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I haven't, I have been kind of like, you know how you, your eye catches something about what she's been doing, but she certainly has done things. Her grandfather was a police officer in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, where her father grew up, and he grew up uh, to be uh, a well-known ethical lawyer in the city of Boston and became Massachusetts' first black um, Commonwealth of Massachusetts Attorney General. So, um, you know, you celebrate those those kinds of things. We know that it is when she sits on the court. Uh, she's been on the Judicial Council for a couple of years, but when she sits on a case uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as she reviews the cases of the lower courts, we know that she has a third ear. We know that she has a third eye. We know that she has a third brain. Her track record tells us that she will use all three of those things in carrying out her obligations and responsibilities as a Supreme Court justice. Um and you hope for those things. I mean, you know, uh, I look at uh, Rachel Rollins, who is the um, Attorney General for, Ma- for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. For the Commonwealth of Massachusetts now, she was one of my kids in my civic academy that I used to run at the at the Boys Girls Club in Roxbury many years ago. She and Ayanna Presley, impressive young women. With the third eye, with the third ear, with the and 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 going forward bravely and boldly, and black without apology. So, um, how did I get talking about that? Well, anyway, our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. We will welcome your call unless you call in here to be foolish. We will hang up on you. That's one of the things that we will do because uh, I got the power, Alpha. I got the power. Uh, <laughs> and um, so one of the things that I did, so we have this, this, this Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, 
the chair of the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate. And he thought he wasn't going to be checked. He got checked by the Georgia State, the state of Georgia, uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. So here's a story. Raffensperger is a Republican, and in January, he declined an offer. You see how they were, they were getting ready for this. He declined an offer in January to serve as an quote-unquote honorary co-chair of the Trump campaign in Georgia, the same way that the governor of Georgia, when he essentially wiped black people out of their voting rights uh, so that he could win the governorship when he was in this position, and they thought they were going to do the same thing. And Raffensperger wasn't having it. And he, he, he checked them. He snitched on them. He snitched on Lindsey Graham, and it is reported on yesterday that there was someone on the call. So after Lindsey Graham denied it ever happened, he didn't deny the phone call, he denied he was a snooping and trying to encourage this man to tinker with the ballots, But but this is Lindsey Graham. Why should Lindsey Graham number number one? Who, who I mean, this is what happens when you have an authoritarian government. There is nobody who is going to tell Lindsey Graham, resign or you will be impeached, and we will impeach you in a week. Because it's not going to happen. Our number is 347-838-9852. And I will tell you some more about how this happened. So once he um, rejected the GOP request to support Trump publicly, he believes that he was overseeing the election properly, that it would be a conflict of interest for him to take sides, which is exactly what Kemp should have done. But he didn't because he was going to steal the election from Stacey Abrams. And uh, around the country... Most secretaries of state remain officially neutral in in elections, except for, in this election, the GOP-complicit traitors, the the Trump Crime Commission, the Trump Crime Syndicate, okay? So they decided what they were going to do was attack his job performance. You know, we'll t- we'll show you, we'll put you in your place. And he publicly said that he thought the attacks on his job performance was clearly retaliation. 
Uh, he even said in an interview, and I quote Mr. Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State, good for him, they thought Georgia was a layup shot Republican win. It is not the job of the Secretary of State's office to deliver a win. It is the sole responsibility of the Georgia Republican Party to get out the vote and get its voters to the polls. That is not the job of the Secretary of State. He said that. He busted them good time. He said that in an interview. Good for him. And he, he's a Republican. But they thought that that mattered, this Trump crime commission. This GOP bunch of complicit traitors thought that that mattered. And and, and here is the thing. I don't think that there is any organized group of people in coming out of the black uh, the, the Congressional Black Caucus, the CBC, or coming out of any Georgia organization that is challenging. I mean, if I put it in my own words, uh, I would be saying, it would be like, okay, I would do it this way. Why is Lindsey Graham, Senator from South Carolina, meddling in the affairs of Georgia. That would be one thing. The other question is whether or not Lindsey Graham did that, in or, the same thing, in his own state to defeat Jamie Harrison. Okay. And the un, you know, there's always a, a underbearing, a bearing wall in some of this stuff. And the bearing wall here is Lindsey Graham wasn't supposed to win South Carolina. Susan Collins wasn't supposed to win Maine. So. We're we're dealing in the bed of unethical, potentially criminal activities in the state of Georgia. And in this authoritarian regime that Trump has, has created, nobody is seriously... Raising the issue. The other is um, things you might want to talk about. Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two that I didn't mention yet is that on yesterday, um, Nancy Pelosi was re-elected. It might have been today. It was yesterday or today. Uh, re-elected as a by her, the body of the House of Representatives to be the speaker in this administration in in this term. Um and that Chuck Schumer was also reelected by 
the Democrats in the U.S. Senate to be the Democratic leader of the Senate. I I don't know what your thoughts, I'd be interested to hear in your thoughts about what that all means. Um, So that's a story in Georgia. And uh, I've never done this over the air, but uh, I have been really encouraging people uh, to get involved, to donate $5, $10, $15, $20 to the Warnock and uh, to the Senate races. Uh, democratic races. I have never done this in all my all my years of uh of um broadcasting any particular candidate and I, I'm just encouraging you um because uh, to donate to these Senate races um, um because these two people going to the Senate is crucial to strengthening any action that's going to be taken by this administ- by the Biden administration without having control or having a leverage in the Senate. Joe Biden's going to have a hard time, going to have a really hard time. Okay, let's go to this story about, and my number again is 347-838-9852, and I'm telling you right now, since I'm the CEO of Our Common Ground Media, this is a service that we're offering. If the service is not taken, uh, we'll cancel it. Maybe I'll put Alpha on on Wednesday night. Alpha, you could do Wednesday night and Friday night. Uh, <laughs> that would be a good thing. Um, and and all you people from the black left who said that there was not enough time given two weeks ago to talk about blacks against capitalism, how the fuck you gonna be against? Um, excuse me, how you gonna be against capitalism and you ain't even in the system? You're an outlier. What outliers get to have any opinion? Where are you going to ex- where are you going to execute your ideology? You had four years. Where is the anti-capitalism party? I'm not sure how you think this is going to happen. Um, three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. We're going to take a break, and when we come back. Uh, we're going to talk about this other story about the Small Business Administration is finally going to have to tell us where you sent the money, where the money at. <laughs> I'm Janice Graham. We'll, we'll, we'll be right back and hope you stay with us. So why can't we figure this stuff out, y'all? It's because we don't take this stuff seriously. 
these folks got a plan, and they've been working their plan for a very long time, and I can say that because when I say 50 years, on the same damn thing. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but I, we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. Let's see what you can do to lend a hand. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. You don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another jet fight. As they the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete, urban, progressive politics, politics, politics. At TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. Always got my feet to beating 
and my hand up in the air, just like you just don't care. <laughs> this is our common ground, uh, open mic Wednesday, post hoc. Really, you know, post hoc is a term, is a, is a Latin term uh, for our carring are done after the event with the logical relationship with the event it follows. So on at post hoc at our common ground, we're asking the question about last Saturday night and more. And the other thing is tonight I'm saying, excuse me, Mr. Biden, I'm speaking. Because one of the things that is happening is that nobody is dealing with these out of control, the coup d'etat that is happening in our country. You know, I really resent the idea that my tax dollar goes for somebody, go pays for people like um, uh, Emily Murphy, who is the administrator of the GSA. I mean, this woman is a woman I remember – When I was in federal service, there was a big, big scandal because Emily Murphy, the the, the administrator, can I tell you what the, the GSA is? General Services Administration. It handles, it has one of the biggest budgets, and I'm talking about compared after the Pentagon. All those federal cars you see, federal uh, vans, federal vehicles of any kind, the General Services Administrator has responsibility for those. Every phone, every phone, every chair, every desk, every computer, every cell phone, every anything having to do with the operation of a federal facility. The general administration, if you live in a town that has a federal building, is responsible for that building. They've got a real estate division that is one of the largest workforces in the world, not just in the country, in the world. General Services Administration takes care of the embassies, takes care of, I mean, I mean, you've been to the federal building in New York City, you've been to the, um, um, the Thomas E. O'Neill building and the JFK, J.F. Kennedy federal buildings in Boston. One is 14 stories and other is 28 stories. Big real estate in the north end and in the downtown of Boston. That is the General Services Administration. Uh, and I'm, I'm telling you, every desk, you can't get a desk for an office or for any place, and it's the Army bases, the Naval bases, the prisons, the the ever general federal prisons, 
for the not the the prison operation, but the deaths, the 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 the, the, the whatever, um, the telephones, the computers, the every copy machine. Do you know how many copy machines in the federal in federal service? Every federal building in Washington D.C. Department of Justice, Department of Energy, Department of that's the General Services Administration. This woman, who is the administrator, Emily Murphy, who won't do the ascertainment for the new incoming administration, she is responsible for all of that. Amazing, isn't it? She has a bachelor's degree and she hasn't been there not even 10 years. I mean, not even six years. They plucked her up to do the bidding. And I believe that there has been some, I mean, I may be wrong. Allegedly, there could be, there could be potential. So I won't get sued by the Trump campaign or the Trump administration or whoever that there is so much potential for, I want to know where the desk came from. I want to know if the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. is getting serviced by, uh, are getting discount. Because I, I, you, you, you get where I'm going here. And Mar-a-Lago. I mean, the General Services Administration handles the request by the Secret Service and the FBI and the CIA and everybody else for vehicles. That that little ditty of a, a mega million car, bulletproof armored car that your president took the little did his little clown parade at the Walter Reed Hospital. He medically sealed. You know how much that vehicle cost? Well, the General Services Administration did all the paperwork to get that vehicle done, manufactured, and delivered. All the Tags. I mean, I used to drive a federal. I, I, I for years I drove a federal vehicle uh, simply because uh, I didn't want to be harassed when I went from little little towns in in New Hampshire and Maine and and Vermont and Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, when you're when you're driving a federal vehicle the federal tag on it, you're not likely to get harassed by the local police for anything. So it was kind of like my barrier, black woman barrier, to um, you don't live here, stop getting stopped because in a little town in Maine, you don't live here, who are you, where you going, who you visiting, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. So... That's your General Services Administration Administrator who has proven herself to be 
a trumper. And she has the audacity right now to be looking for a job. And I led people right to her LinkedIn page and said, you know, go vet her for potential employers. Because, you know, people in corporate America don't pay attention to a lot of this stuff. But so anyway, so you have her and you have, I resent her getting a paycheck. And believe me, she is a GS-15. That means she is getting paid. You can't be any higher in civil service in the federal government than a GS-15. So, uh, you know, you got these people, and then you got the little Kathy, Karen, Crystal, whatever her name, McEnany, as press secretary in the White House. All of these people ought to be shamed. The liars and the conspirators and, 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 and those who are willing to be collaborators with this criminal president they ought to be shamed. I love going on the White House. I love not being in federal service because I can call their names. The little, um, you know, the, the lady uh, who's a regional administrator for HUD, who was the wedding planner. Damn, I've forgotten her name. I, I never want to, uh, how did I forget her name? because she was part of the formula for my retirement. But she's going to be looking for a job, too. And my question is, is she going back to wedding planning or if she if, if she's going to try to get a job in housing? But I, I, I guarantee you she's going to try to get a job in housing. I know her. I used to have to sit at a table with her on a monthly basis. She, that's what she's going to try to do because she's going to try to get into real estate now that she's been a region, now that she knows something about FHA, now that she knows something about um, you watch one of these Republican governors. It sure won't be Andrew Cuomo, because you know Andrew Cuomo used to be Secretary of HUD, and and he knows HUD real well. Not that he knew housing real well, but he knows HUD real well. So you've got all these people, and then and they need to be shamed. I I didn't mean to go on a, but I'm taking up people's time who didn't call. Our number is 347-838-9852. And one of the things I'm going to share with you going out is a young man who has given a great deal of thought to what activism ought to look like, what activists, uh, how activists organize their activism careers. So uh, it's about, I I didn't, I want to give Duke University the credit, so I didn't uh, trim it down. 
but I think it had some important things to say. So if we don't get any callers in the next couple of minutes, I'm going to go with that. Because I don't want to be on here ranting and raving. I, I don't like ranting and raving. Um, oh, and I do want to do a shout-out to uh, to my granddaughter. My granddaughter is uh, an assistant, uh, um, is a, works as the training and compliance manager of um, the um, office of um, chief of the chief medical examiner um, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. She started off as an assistant um She started off as an assistant medical examiner, and now she is the manager of um, she is the manager of training and compliance for all of the people who come through that office. So, um, I I'm really proud of the way in which she goes into how she, her worth ethic, her work aspirations, and and her sense of, of wanting to achieve excellence. So I do want to shout out for her because today she received the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Governor's Outstanding Performance Award for her work in the Chief Medical Examiner's Office. And much of it had to do with her developing policies for state troopers and uh, local police departments and hospitals and funeral homes and um the the way in which the a new way in which the medical examiner's office uh needed to handle autopsies in the pandemic um and um she is and, and you know i'm i'm very proud of her she ha- is working on a publication with someone that you might know who you might have caught uh i introduced her to dr kamara Jones, who is a uh, Radcliffe Fellow at the Kennedy School of Government, um, they have been talking, and now they are developing a paper which has to do with the cultural differences in um, and how and protocol for medical examiners and how they deal with deceased persons and their families. You know, putting purpose in her work. I, I really love that. So here's your last call on this. Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. And um if not we're gonna we're gonna go and
take a listen to Dr. Tenzin, who's talking about activism. Well, um, thank you all for coming this evening. I'm really delighted to introduce Dr. Christopher Tinson, who is Associate Professor of African, Africana Studies and History and Director of the African American Studies Program at St. Louis University. His first book, Radical Intellect, Liberator Magazine and Black Activism in the 1960s, was published by UNC Press and was the winner of the inaugural Pauli Murray Prize for Best Book in African-American Intellectual History from the African-American Intellectual History Society. And it's under the auspices of um, the Pauli Murray Center that, that, uh, that we've invited um, uh, Dr. Tinson here today. So Radical Intellect tells the story of the great internationalist magazine, Liberator Magazine, which was the publication for the small but powerful group, um, the Liberation Committee for Africa. Professor Tinson opens from the magazine to the larger story of global black radicalism through the 1960s, its critique of the civil rights movement, and its embrace of African freedom movements and U.S. revolutionary nationalist movements for the imagining of a new global order. Professor Tinson writes of Dan Watts, a black architect, Pete Beveridge, a white veteran and radical who was a Communist Party member, and Richard Gibson, a black intellectual and journalist, and their affiliates who are radical artists, journalists, and other intellectuals. We hear of the publications of black radical feminists, writers like Tony Cade <coughs> Bambara and James Baldwin, interviews with the likes of Malcolm X. This is a really profound history of that radical internationalist movement that understood affiliation with the African diaspora um, and a movement in solidarity. Dr. Tinson's talk today um, is titled Warring with Democracy, Black Activism and the Challenge of History. Please join me on, in congratulating him on his award and welcoming him to Duke. Thank you. Thank you. How's everybody doing? Good. All right. We got a small group, so there might be a lot of call and response. Um, but I, I promised my brother over here that I would stay in one place, so I'm not going. I'm not going to quite move around. Um, but it's a pleasure being here, and um, you know, I just want to start off by just thanking you all, one, for being here, but two, just thanking, um, you know, thanking you all for all the work you're doing around Pauli Murray. Um, and also want to give some props to the African American Intellectual History Society, which is really a new space for um, public engagement with professional historians. And um, it's a space that's open, um, that allows us to publish and circulate ideas and you know, some of those ideas are the things that turn into books, but right now they're just pieces of, of histories, um, and it allows us to engage the public in a more direct fashion than, than we perhaps ordinarily um, otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't do. So um, I want to thank them, obviously, for honoring me with this award and looking at my book, taking it serious enough to um, say that it deserves um, some eyeballs. Um, so what I want to do today, I can tell you a little bit about the book, 
And then I thought from there I would start talking about this question of um, warring with democracy, this question that I put in the title of this new piece that I'm working on. Um, and I really want to position Liberator Magazine and the writers that came through Liberator Magazine in conversation with our current debates over democracy. And I also want to look at what the role of the academy is in either propelling or thwarting or doing something with democracy. And it's something that has just been tugging on me after I finished this book. So if you'll bear with me, I'll talk a little bit about the book so that you can hopefully be interested and uh, go and got, get a copy. And then um, after that, we'll have this conversation around democracy, if, that okay with, if that's okay with everybody. Is that cool? Is that a good setup? All right. I feel like, I, you know, this is the parenthetical remark. I feel like I have so much to say that if I don't look at my paper, I'm going to just be all over the place. And that's good for my students. It's not good for a public talk, okay? Um, so I'm going to look at my notes here just to keep me on task. Um, and I really want to get, get us thinking about this question of democracy. So, all right, Liberator Magazine. Anybody ever heard of Liberator Magazine before today? Okay, you heard of it? So um, Liberator Magazine was this magazine that really emerges in the anti-colonial era, right? This is the moment uh, post-World War II, throughout the 1950s, and in particular, the moment of decolonization in Africa. And that, that movement essentially catapults the Liberator group into action. Now, of course, in the domestic, on the domestic side of things, we had this vast civil rights movement that was underway. So what you had was these folks who were participants in organizations um, like the Communist Party and many other kind of labor organizations who were also compelled by the international developments, particularly around African independence, and they wanted to link the civil rights movement in the United States to what was going on internationally. Now, of course, that wasn't new, but it was just a new group of people doing that kind of work. Um, and of course, you know, if we have a longer sense of history, we'll know that this was a, a burning desire to really connect African experiences in the United States to international conditions was part of 19th century thought and even before that amongst black Americans, right? So this was nothing new. It was more of a continuation. But they also have a very specific formation, and that is two things. The independence of Ghana um, in 1957, March 6, 1957, as well as the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. And those two events on the African continent really propelled the group that became Liberator, the Liberation Committee for Africa, propelled them into action. Now, of course, they weren't the only group on the scene. You had a number of groups like On Guard for Freedom, um, the Harlem Writers Guild, um, and a number of different kinds of organizations that had spun out of different formations affiliated with the Communist Party that was doing work around African independence. What was distinct was they also believed in a sense of black nationalism that put them at odds with the kind of easy um, acceptance of inclusion. I know we use this term at the academy a lot. Inclusivity uh, is a big buzzword right now. They also were critiquing the kind of what they perceived as the moderate or mainstream civil rights positioning vis-a-vis -vis the United States government. They took a more, what would be considered a nationalist standpoint, black nationalist standpoint, 
which has its own kind of genealogy and not the nationalism that we see talking about on CNN uh, earlier today. Not that, not that kind of. We're, we're going to come to that when we talk about questions of democracy. So what was going on in this period? You had a wonderful group of people who were organizing, I mean, all over New York City where Liberator starts, but also in places like Detroit and Chicago and also Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and also parts of the South. In particular, the Revolutionary Action Movement, which comes into existence during this time, thought it was their job as young, younger activists to not only exercise a greater degree of appreciation for militancy, but also to actually try to go and influence the direction of, of militancy in the South in particular. As Northerners, they saw themselves as trying to go and organize in the South. And in particular, one of the sites that they set up on was SNCC, was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is made up of young people. And they, um, folks from, from RAM, um, really tried to go down and make inroads with SNCC. And they created an organization called the African American Student Movement, ASM for short. They had a major conference in 1964, which really tried to hone in on this conception of black nationalism and really to get SNCC to accept that they were pushing for black nationalist positions. Now, what's a black nationalist position? A black nationalist position is one that suggests that there should be some fundamental black unity. The second piece that they talked about was really thinking about how you unite across class differences, right? And the third piece was how do you really connect this to an international movement for a new world order? And those were the three kind of positions. Now, if you look at the SNCC material before then, it was mostly just focused on the South. And so after this point, people really started to think globally, really started to push for activism globally and to try to develop that international consciousness amongst civil rights workers in the United States. Now, anytime somebody did that in this period, they would automatically be branded a communist. So this puts civil rights organizations in a pickle, right? It puts them in a difficult situation where they want to identify with this more militant phase, uh, more militant approach, but at the same time, they don't want to be branded as communists and therefore locked out of all discussions around reform and justice in the United States. As you know, this is how hysterical this period was. And so activists of all stripes had to really make some very difficult decisions. Um, in the first part of the book, I really talk about this question of African independence and its influence on the liberator in particular and the formation, the early formation of the liberator. The second chapter really looks at the intellectual work and debates that went on amongst groups in the United States of which Liberator, Liberation Committee for Africa was a part. But there were also groups that were sponsored by the United States government. And many of these groups were um, groups that tried to solicit African students to the United States and tried to get them into a kind of democratic positioning. And so that basically you would, you would basically get in front of, right, and try to cut off any kind of militant solidarity that could lead to African independence siding against the West, right? And so the United States government was very slick about that and um, was very clever in recruiting a lot of African students to come. And so a lot of students were able to come and study in the United States. And that's the first wave in the 1960s of these African students studying in the United States. Folks around Liberator was really trying to get and make friends with a lot of these folks so they could bring them over into a kind of more radical positioning and so I talk about, I talk about that group, um, that, that kind of formation 
in the second chapter of the book. And who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about not just Liberator on one side, but there was a very influential organization named AMSAC. Anybody ever heard of AMSAC? It's the American Society of African Culture. And the American Society for African Culture, AMSAC for short, um, was a, a space that allowed many African Americans who wanted to either travel to Africa or do some kind of cultural work with the African continent, and it basically funded their work. Well, years later, it was found out that the CIA was sponsoring AMSAC. <laughs> okay. So this was a difficult thing for many people, and they had a very, very extensive Rolodex okay, of, of contacts. And so it was a very difficult kind of space for many of these activists to, to realize that their, their connection to Africa was really being thwarted from the very beginning um, by a government that they saw themselves at odds with. And this was a very difficult thing for many of them. And some of the names that you would see if you study people on the left, you would see that um, it would shock you how many people were going to their meetings, how many people they counted as members. And they also sponsored some major conferences as well where a lot of people, jazz artists, writers, um, all participated. So this was just a one-up, you know, from on high. And um, the surveillance of these activists continued throughout this period. So this was a very difficult piece. In the third chapter, I really look at um, the, the impact of women activists, black women activists, on the work that Liberator in particular was doing. And it wasn't just to isolate and, and say, okay, just give women their own chapter. It's to say, like, look specifically and with detail about what they brought to the table in terms of political organizing, not just aesthetic questions of identity, but about political analysis, about anti-nuclear discussions that was going on amongst the black left. That was about militancy and organizing locally. That was about education reform. Um, some of it did have to do deal with, with aesthetics because they also protested Ebony Magazine when Ebony Magazine wrote, read a, um, ran a story that said, are Negro girls getting prettier? And so, and of course, you know, and if you know anything about Ebony Magazine, you know, um, they you could kind of traffic in a kind of respectability politic that, you know, also favored a particular kind of phenotype amongst black women as well. So women who associated with Liberator, as well as many black nationalists or cultural nationalist groups and organizations in New York City, actually went to Chicago and went to the New York offices and actually protested this black magazine. And from then on, you will see a, a sea change in the coverage that Ebony gives to black women. So that's just one example of the kind of work that they were doing. But there was more work being done on local level around school reform, around opening Saturday schools, around cultural awareness, um, and around uh, organizing against the police state, which in Detroit and Philadelphia and New York was already a thing. You know, it was already well known that activists got disciplined in very particular kinds of ways, and many of the women activists who came through Liberator were knee-deep in those struggles against um, against the what we call now the carceral state. So there's a, a whole broad constellation of activism that was going on. Chapter four, I really look at the question of how, do, how did the debate around revolution or rebellion or reform actually take shape amongst folks in Liberator, but also the kind of larger space. 
um, of, of social activism in this period. So what's the difference between rebellion and revolution? Was a very important point. What's the difference between saying you don't have civil rights and calling yourself a colonial subject? Right? These were the ideological questions that many people who began, began to call themselves revolutionary nationalists were really pushing um, during this period. So in chapter four, I really deal with that whole discussion. And then the fifth chapter was, was a fun one to write in the sense that it allowed me to really look at the cultural imaginings that accompanied the political awareness and really through the lens of two spaces, jazz musicians and jazz criticism. And it's the first time in this, in this period where you really see those things really coming together to become a thing. You know, jazz criticism was just for, you know, kind of not just music magazines to that point. And black artists whose their consciousness was being changed because of the involvement in movements began to not only change their names, but change their music and begin to talk about we need new definition for how the music is even discussed. And that period, um, the Liberator was really far ahead of many other um, periodicals and organizations of its ilk um, in that regard. And so that's pretty much what Liberator did. They ran for 10 years, um, a small outfit, but deeply influential. A name you might know, Harold Cruz, who wrote this powerful book in 1968 called The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. Harold Cruz um, was one of the key theorists of black nationalism and the origins of black nationalism. He wanted to trace the origins of black nationalism through back to enslavement, right? And really not see it as just a 20th century phenomenon, but really see this as a part of the kind of ongoing struggle for rights, autonomy, and self-possession uh, that African-Americans have had to engage in in order to survive the confines of the United States. So this is, you know, so Harold Cruz um, was one of these figures who he published several of the pieces that would become part of the crisis, crisis of Negro intellectual were first serialized in Liberator, 63 and 64. And so he's a, a pivotal figure. Another a figure that comes through is John Henry Clark, who is known as the sage of, of, of Harlem uh, historians. And he was... Um, the editor-in-chief of another magazine, the kind of sister publication to Liberator, called Freedom Ways. And Freedom Ways also published out of New York City, and this was a black-led organization, but they had closer ties to the Communist Party. And they, they ran for about uh, three decades. So Freedom Ways, another journal you might know is Negro Digest. Um, that became Black World later on. That was published out of Chicago. And the, one of the paradoxes of this period was that you could have mainstream publications like the Johnson Empire, who published Ebony Magazine, also have enough you know, wherewithal, capital, to basically say, okay, I'm going to give folks an outlet to really talk about the intellectual side of this stuff and not just the cultural stuff. If you looked at the old Ebony Magazine, you would see commercials for platform shoes, Cadillacs, cognac, cigarettes, all this kind of stuff. And then the next couple pages, it'll be like some hard-hitting <laughs> analysis. Well, folks on the left, they saw that as a problem. They saw that as Johnson basically trying to serve two masters. And, you know, this is the 60s, right? There wasn't a whole lot of um, nuance necessarily, and people felt that things were so um, at a heightened level that they couldn't afford people, you know, who were what they saw as dabbling with 
the entanglements of capitalism. And so the people, the way they distinguished themselves were people who were staunchly anti-capitalist, right, or, you know, consistently anti-capitalist, consistently anti-colonial, and consistently anti-racist. That is, that's the kind of major pillars of what's called the revolutionary black nationalist position, right? So, of course, in Liberated, you're going to have a whole lot of stuff around the war effort, whole lot of stuff around critiquing the Johnson administration, before that the Kennedy administration, a whole uh, series of articles that, that take on Dr. King, quite honestly, and some very unflattering comic strips about Dr. King um, essentially being the servant of the Kennedy administration. So these were people who were really trying to push um, a kind of hard left position, but um, you know, using African-American experience as the key glue, rather than saying, this is Marxism, we're going to follow, you know, these kind of lines that were coming out of the Communist Party. These were people who were really trying to say, indigenous African experience in the United States gives us, gives birth to this analytical framing. And that's the, that's the conversation that was not had in many other spaces, okay? So that's Liberator Magazine in a nutshell. Uh, if it wasn't for this beautiful piece right here, I would have brought the screen down and showed you copies of the Liberator and other things. But I figured that there's so much history in this <laughs> that I do not need to mess it up by bringing up some other slides and stuff. But if you if you want to see what Liberator looked at, it's inside the book. What it, what it looks like, it's inside the book. Okay. So I write this book, and I write about the people who saw themselves on the political left. And then I was given a talk and somebody asked me at the end, like, okay, so what about the people who never join movements, right? It's always more people who don't join movements than people who do. And I had to really think about it and I said, okay, and the question was, what were they doing during that same period that every, that, you know, because you made a big deal, Tenson, out of all these activists, and all the work that they were doing, what about the people who were just everyday citizens who may have been and accepted the draft, right? May have been drafted and, then, and went to war, right? What about those folks who were just school teachers, who just were churchgoers, et cetera? So it made me start to think more about this question of what these folks were actually calling for, what society they were trying to create, and on whose behalf were they trying to do that work, right? Because much of activism is about sacrifice. It's about, you know, being fired up about a particular issue, such as you ready to give your life to that issue. And you have a lot of this going on. But what about the people who were just kind of bystanders? And what I started to come away with was those are folk who were not passive, but they, just, they weren't necessarily as fired up or felt at the moment that they needed to do the organizing work, but they did want, more or less, people to change. They did want less war. A lot of them did want less imprisonment, less police brutality, less all the things that are difficult for us. And it made me start to think about how those folk you know, are articulating democratic citizenship and what the space of democratic citizenship actually means. Because at the end of the day, 
is about black activism within a particular tradition that has particular ideological pillars, right? But at the end of the day, they're asking for the creation of a better society. So the question is, are these radicals outside of how we might imagine a truly democratic space? Or can they be said to be radicalizing democracy? Or can they be said to be bringing democracy's actual definition into being? So those questions I was left with, right? And so what I've been working on lately are thinking about people who were just a shade to the right of these folk. If this is the left, right? So I wanted to see who was just a shade to the right. Um, and I don't mean on the right, okay? That's a conversation for a different day. Well, maybe we can talk about that after. But the, the point is, is who were the people who, were, who still believed in democracy, essentially? Who still believed that something called democracy was achievable in the United States? You know, these are people, the people I talk about, the Skia Toure's and Max Stanford, who changed his name to Muhammad Ahmed, um, people like Langston Hughes and others, Du Bois, obviously, Paul Robeson. You know, these are, these are folk who, they had a position and they came to that position through deep study, deep, intense study. And they also realized that they probably wouldn't see true democracy in their own lifetime. And that kind of space, um, I'm, I'm both motivated by that space, and as a historian, I'm troubled by it because I want to look at who were the people who weren't necessarily going to the meetings, but were just trying to carry out their day-to-day -day business, right? So it started getting me to think more about, rather than just a a sliver of the activist community, which this is a sliver for sure, um, but it reverberated throughout the movement as a whole. And think about who are the people just, just to the right of these folks, right? Who would be considered, I guess, in our day, uh, black liberals or black progressives. And I want to see how they were in conversation with the folks on the left. And I, I situated in that way because I think that Ironically, many of the people that I write about, I'm not sure that Paulie Murray would necessarily agree with. You see? In terms of their position, in terms of the constellation of her friends, right, and the constellation of the kinds of activism that she was engaged in, I'm not sure that she would agree with all the positions that my folks took. Right, <laughs> and I think that that space of 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 constructive disagreement or ideological difference is critical to how we think about advancing democracy, and it's critical to think about how we imagine people on the progressive side of the pendulum, right, from the progressive side all the way to the anti-colonial revolutionary black nationalists. Like, those are people who might have more in common, might have more agreement than not. But in our day now, the differences kill many of the commonalities on the left. I have nothing to say about the right, okay? Just reminding you. But people on the left have more in common. But there's some differences of the way in which we see activism the way what our targets are in in our activist work, and how we build bridges, those or, or build allies and build comrades, those are the things that we struggle over. 
right? So I'm looking at those lessons. And I think that those are lessons that we're left with after the book, is just thinking about what, what do we do now, now if you guys had the right idea but didn't have the mass movement, and then the mass movement has everybody in the streets but don't have the analytical, the fine points of analysis, where do we marry the two? And I think that that's the question that many of us are struggling with today, thinking about the movement for black lives, um, you know, thinking about the nationwide anti-prison movement that, that you know, has its fits and starts, um, thinking about people like um, Reverend Barber, right, and, and the attempt to really build a broad-based coalition of people who have some of the same ideas, if not all down to the same punctuation, at least there can be some common agreement on that side that would allow for a crescendo of activism that might lead to some fundamental changes. You know, you I really enjoyed listening to Dr. Tinson because I think that all of our thought leaders have to bring us through the history of where we are and be able to provide some reflection about our commonalities in history with uh in in terms of uh ideology. We want to thank you so very much for joining us on this premier edition of post hoc at our common ground, which is our open mic night. I guess um people really don't want to talk or they forget they want to talk or they have many, many opportunities to talk elsewhere or otherwise. So we thank you and write down our number for this Wednesday open mic night at our common ground, 347-838-9852. We thank all of you. Uh, We really appreciate you joining us and spending this time with us um, and hanging in there with us. I hope that it has been informative as uh, a listening experience, and uh, we hope to see you on Friday night. Don't forget the Alpha Show at 10 p.m. at TruthWorks Network, and also on Saturday night on the regular uh, edition of Our Common Ground. We're going to be talking with Carl Dix, the initiator of Refuse Fascism and the Revolutionary Communist Party. And we're going to be talking and asking the question, who are you calling a communist? I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so very much for being with us tonight. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think it has to do with organized greed, organized hatred, and organized corruption, not just in the White House, but it's the ways in which Wall Street domination, the ways in which the Pentagon, military and money, big military and money have come together and are beginning to suck out the rich energies of one of the great democratic experiments in the modern world, the USA, and all of its flaws. 
democratic elements and democratic practices seem to be so weak and feeble. Well, I think America has to acknowledge itself as an empire, make the connection between the the militarizing that's taking place domestically, police, mass incarceration, and the 800 military bases, and the 211 interventions in 67 countries since 1945. That connection between militarism abroad, militarism internally, needs to be wrestled with something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood very well before his death in 1968. The 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Graham. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.